Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Well, on this week's No Restraint podcast, I've got a couple of different subjects on my mind. One is a great article that I read by a senior fellow at the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, and the author of How the Other Half Learns regarding Moms for Liberty, a very interesting group. I also want to talk about Israel because I just can't figure out what does Joe Biden have against Israel? So we'll get to that subject as well. In the first part of the program, I want to talk about the Moms for Liberty. They had a meeting in Philadelphia called a Joyful Warrior Summit about a week and a half ago. And Christian Ziegler, who's the chairman of the Florida Republican Party and father to three school-aged daughters, is in there stiffening spines. Dozens of the attendees, mostly of them women, are nodding and taking notes as Christian Ziegler explains how they have to work with the local news media. And of course, people like me, members of the media, whether it's mainstream or conservative. He told them that their product is parental rights. He says, your product is protecting children and eliminating indoctrination and the sexualization of children. You are the grassroots. You're on the ground. You're the moms, the grandmoms, the families that are impacted, and the stories that you tell are going to set the narrative. And above the gathering, which was in the ballroom floor of the downtown Marriott, camera crews were set up for the parade of Republican presidential hopefuls who were coming to the Moms for Liberty, about 600 members attending, to curry favor with them. And a few thousand of those Moms for Liberty were watching a live stream. Ron DeSantis, of course, held forth one morning. Nikki Haley was speaking at lunch. Donald Trump closed things out later in the afternoon. And somewhere in the next 24 hours, they would hear from Vivek Ramaswamy, the entrepreneur, and former Governor Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas. Is he still in the race? guess so. It was an astonishing display of political drawing power, considering Moms for Liberty didn't even exist three years ago. The candidates all came to pay opiescence to the animating idea that has galvanized these women and these parents that they, and not the government, should be in charge of how the children are raised and educated. And if you want to understand why these politicians went, you need to go to the breakout sessions where hour after hour, Moms for Liberty chapter leaders and foot soldiers learn how to run for school boards, and if they win, how to advance their agenda, even when they're in the minority. 
There are talks on messaging strategies and mining school board minutes for signs of woke indoctrination. There are workshops on how to file public records requests and navigate the legal system. They aren't messing around. More than half of the 500 candidates Moms for Liberty endorsed for local school board elections last year won their races. School choice moms provided the margin of victory in Ron DeSantis' first run for the Florida governor in 2018. Democrat Terry McAuliffe was leading the race for Virginia governor in 2021 before his debate remark that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach handed the win to Glenn Youngkin, the Republican. Moms for Liberty is the beating heart of this country's movement of angry parents, and American education has never seen anything quite like it. They launched in January of 2021 when frustration with pandemic masking rules had reached a boiling point. There were requests to form local chapters starting in, uh, I don't know, almost immediately after Tina Diskovich called into Glenn Beck's radio show to announce the founding of Moms for Liberty. She was then on the Rush Limbaugh show, Fox News, and Steve Bannon's War Room. And within six months, Megyn Kelly was hosting a fundraiser. Its slogan, emblazoned on thousands of T-shirts, is We Don't Co-Parent with Government. That message has found an enormous and growing audience, with 120,000 members and nearly 300 chapters in 45 states, Moms for Liberty is already the most consequential education advocacy organization since Teach for America, but with none of the halo effect that inspired a generation of elite college grads to put off law school and medical school, like my daughter Jenya, and put off Wall Street to teach in inner cities or rural parts of America. As many of you know, my daughter Jenya, before medical school, went into Teach for America and taught in rural Mississippi for two years. Moms for Liberty is Teach for America's dark opposite number. They won't be talked out of their conviction that malign forces in public schools, gender ideology, critical race theory, Marxism, anti-Americanism, have come for their children, and they're having none of it. I think they're one of the few truly authentic and responsive eduparental rights groups that has emerged in recent history, says a prominent parent choice supporter who's not associated with Moms for Liberty, who would only speak anonymously because of the group's radioactive reputation in education and philanthropic circles. They're not just mouthpieces on social media. They have a real following. If they weren't effective and if their message wasn't resonant, they wouldn't be so vilified. It's true the group attracts and frequently abides a lunatic fringe, fueling its critics' counter-narrative that the movement is intolerant or even racist. Just last week, an Indiana Moms for Liberty chapter put a Hitler quote in its newsletter, and the story went national. The quote, he alone who owns the youth gains the future, was intended to warn parents what happens when a regime targets its children for indoctrination. But when critics are calling you ultra-right-wing Christo-fascists, it's probably unwise to invoke Hitler in any context. The local chapter apologized, probably because she hasn't gone through the right training, Ziegler told the crowd. Frankly, it was BS. Even before the Hitler controversy, media coverage of the group has been harsh. The Nation magazine described Moms for Liberty as hateful fascist bigots. 
The New Republic said the group has created nightmares for schools across the country. An article in Vice reported they have ties to the Proud Boys, a claim that co-founder Tiffany Justice strenuously denies. A story in the Washington Post led with the Southern Poverty Law Center's recent designation of Moms for Liberty as an extremist group devoted to spreading messages of anti-inclusion and hate. When Ziegler's wife, Bridget, one of the original Moms for Liberty, started serving on the school board in Sarasota County, Florida, nearly a decade ago, the negative press coverage reduced her to tears. Now, Ziegler tells the room, the couple compares their bad press clips on date nights. You actually get to this amazing moment when you realize, hey, if they attack me, I can go raise money on this. I can get my message out by piggybacking on that attack. It's brutal to be on defense. Always play offense. Never apologize. Never, ever, never, he insists. Ziegler, meanwhile, likes this morning's Washington Post story just fine, even though it details a litany of complaints and criticisms aimed at the group. Moms for Liberty didn't exist three years ago. Now it's a GOP kingmaker. Probably the best headline I've ever seen, he said. In 2021, the National School Boards Association was forced to apologize after a letter it sent to the Biden administration went viral, asking for federal law enforcement to stop domestic terrorism at school board meetings. While Moms for Liberty was not mentioned by name, the letter cited several incidents at which members had protested. Since then, 25 state associations have cut ties with NSBA, the National School Boards Association. At the Philadelphia summit, a handful of mothers were proudly wearing domestic terrorist t-shirts. Outside the Marriott, protesters from Act Up Philly and the Young Communist League are registering their displeasure with an all-day dance party protest. From beyond barricades several hundred feet away, they shout at the hotel and wave signs, Philly is a trans city. Karen Hood, we hate you. Moms for liberty, go home. But the moms are unrepentant. They seem almost to revel in the abuse. On the eve of the Philadelphia summit, co-founder Tiffany Justice said, we're fighting for the survival of America by unifying, educating, and empowering parents to defend their parental rights at all levels of government. A few years ago, if you had to bet on which parent organization could influence the 2024 election, the smart wager would have been on the well-funded National Parents Union, which calls itself an authentically parent-led organization, a label that Moms for Liberty would undoubtedly use to describe itself. The afternoon before Moms for Liberty kicked off their conference, NPU held a sparsely attended rally in Philly's Love Park to condemn its evil and divisive rival, which it claimed seeks school book bans and to whitewash history lessons taught to children. What Moms for Liberty insists are efforts to keep pornography out of school libraries and to combat indoctrination about critical race theory and gender fluidity, NPU says are attempts to attack and marginalize children of color and LGBTQ youth. At the Love Park rally, NPU's president publicly blasted Moms for Liberty, stating unironically that they're bankrolled by big checks from the evils of white supremacy. NPU, for its part, has raised millions in philanthropic support from the Walton Family Foundation, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and the Charles Koch Institute-backed Vela Fund. Moms for Liberty most recent tax filings from 2021 claim a modest $370,000 of revenue. 
Deskovich says accountants are finalizing Moms for Liberty updated Form 990, which will show that our revenue sources have grown from merchandise sales and small donors to include large donors, too. Justice confirms that she and Deskovich now draw full-time salaries for their work. They are two of nine full-time staffers. Their grassroots appeal is easily observable. At the summit, I ran into a neighbor who last year upended our small town in upstate New York with a failed campaign for school board pushing back on government overreach and demanding a return to traditional education. What are the chances we'd run into each other here, he said. Probably 100%, I reply. I write about education for a living, and he's here with his wife, who's thinking about launching a local chapter. They are the Moms for Liberty couple from Central Casting. Until Moms for Liberty efforts to organize parents into an effective political counterweight to teachers' union and to impose their will on K-12 education haven't amounted to very much, Colleen Dippel, the founder of Houston-based Families Empowered, a parent support organization with no connection to the group, says of Moms for Liberty, they're doing things that other organizations have received millions of dollars to do and haven't been able to get done. The NPU hasn't flipped a school board. They haven't changed a policy that I'm aware of. The rise of Moms for Liberty as a force in education policy, local elections, and now the 2024 campaign is, if anything, a function of their refusal to follow the playbook common to parent advocacy organizations, which tend to wither and die when their philanthropic support drives up. Philanthropists will never be able to control these women, says Dippel. Why? Because these women are college-educated, and they don't need their money. They also have time, they have skills, and they're empowered primary voters. The message they send to elected officials is no, no, no. My kid, my money, you work for me. And if you don't, I'll organize all these other women, tell them what's going on, and kick you out of office. Because that's democracy, right? At a private dinner on Friday night after Trump's speech, Pollster Jim McLaughlin presented Moms for Liberty's leaders and advisors with the results of a survey he conducted of likely voters in the upcoming general election. A clear majority, 67 percent, feel that K-12 public education in the U.S. is on the wrong track, including half of Democrats, he says. Nearly three-quarters, including independents and Biden voters, think it's more important for schools to teach children basics like reading, writing, and math rather than issues of social justice, reproductive rights, sex education, and transgender issues. Matt Palumbo, a 30-year veteran Republican political advisor who's worked on several presidential campaigns and attended the briefing, said, I've never seen a consensus like this. This is a winning issue. Obviously, schools do not choose between teaching reader and gender ideology, but it was hard to miss the narrative taking shape in real time in Philadelphia. Education is a state issue, not a federal one. Schools are ground zero in the country's culture war, and Moms for Liberty is positioned to be at the center of it through next November. A majority of Americans simply don't buy the idea that a person can be a gender other than the one assigned at birth, and they don't want their children taught otherwise in public schools. But the passion and energy that has rocketed Moms for Liberty to kingmaker status is also its Achilles heel. Some overly zealous members have gone too far. 
Members of a local Tennessee chapter last year, for example, sued to remove an outstanding English curriculum, Wit and Wisdom, from their school district on the grounds that its elementary school texts about civil rights icons Ruby Bridges and Martin Luther King Jr. are too dark and disturbing for children and violate state laws against teaching critical race theory. A New Hampshire chapter offered a $500 bounty for the person that first successfully catches a public school teacher breaking the state's anti-critical race theory law. An Arkansas mom was banned from school grounds after an audio recording captured her saying, if I had any mental issues, never mind. It's too bizarre to even repeat. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Neither are the group's fanatical elements limited only to local chapters. On Saturday morning at the conference, Moms for Liberty fixture James Lindsay painted a picture of the organization as war moms, fighting a Maoist cultural revolution, engineered at the highest levels of government and elite institutions. When Mao came to power, Lindsay claimed, his first step was to close schools and re-educate teachers. They shut down the schools for two years and came back with a whole new program, Does that sound familiar? Lindsay's conspiracy theory earned him a raucous standing ovation. Erica Donalds, the wife of Florida Congressman Byron Donalds and another former school board member who was present at the founding, she remains on Moms for Liberty's board, believes the group is ready for its moment in the national spotlight. But she's clear-eyed about the potential pitfalls of such a rapid rise. They're very intentional about who speaks on behalf of the organization. They train their members on the issues, and they get out in front of things, she says. But their biggest risk is some rogue woman wearing a Moms for Liberty shirt at a school board meeting acting like a cuckoo. Tiffany Justice acknowledges the risk to the brand, but minimizes the downside. There is no doubt in my mind that there will be things that chapters do that we may not agree with, or we may not be able to stop in advance. If it rises to something that's the level of violating our code of conduct, we have no problem removing a chapter chair or taking the steps to remove a member. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. The work is difficult, and we know that. Teach for America, which is now derided by conservatives for its hard left turn into woke education, claims that 270 of its alumni serve in elected positions around the country, from state representatives, committee members, to school board officials. Moms for Liberty might have had that many or more school board members already, and a multiple of that number weighing a run. Teach for America has been around for 30 years. Moms for Liberty, 30 months. And the way things are going, their influence is likely to explode in the next few years. Today's school board members are tomorrow's state legislators, said Christian Ziegler, the Florida Republican Party chairman, when I spoke with him a few days before the Philadelphia summit. His wife, Bridget, who is serving what she says will be her last school board term in Sarasota, is leading a new program for school board candidates at the Virginia-based Leadership Institute, which since 1979 has trained 250,000 conservative activists in campaigns, fundraising, and communications. Today's state legislators 
are tomorrow's congressmen. So that's an interesting group for you to be watching out for. And now I got to move into this topic of what does Joe Biden have against Israel? He treats the governing coalition in Jerusalem worse than he treats Iran. He goes out of his way to snub, to criticize, and to give marching orders to the government of Israel. At least rhetorically, the president and his administration treat Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his governing coalition worse than they do the ruling mullahs in Iran. Mr. Biden declined again this week in gratuitous public fashion to invite Mr. Netanyahu to the White House, pointing to the prime minister's elected coalition partners. Tom Needs, Mr. Biden's departing ambassador to Israel, chimes in that the U.S. must speak up to stop Israel from going off the rails. Each jibe makes headlines in Israel. When Mr. Netanyahu was most vulnerable in late March, Mr. Biden needlessly decreed that Israel cannot continue down this road on judicial reform. The prime minister had already changed course and agreed to moderate the reforms, a domestic Israeli affair in which the U.S. president has no business. Mr. Needs publicly instructed Mr. Netanyahu, as if with his chauffeur, to pump the brakes. The effect of this piling on is for Israelis to see that the U.S. sides with their opposition parties. This is no way to treat a Democratic ally and no way to pursue U.S. interests while Mr. Netanyahu's Likud party is in power, as it has been for most of the 25 past years. Whether Israel's proposed reforms would rein in the high court's unusual powers in the absence of a constitution or tip the balance too far towards British-style parliamentary supremacy is for Israelis to debate which they do, noisily, without Mr. Biden's commentary. The president's Israel policy has been counterproductive. USA to anti-Israel international bodies has resumed, and all of the West Bank and East Jerusalem is treated as occupied territory. This is now a liberal article of faith. But how does it advance peace to indulge Palestinians in the belief that Jews are interlopers in Judea and at the Western Wall? While Mr. Biden undermines the Netanyahu government, Hamas and other Iranian proxies are gaining power in the West Bank, activating another front against Israel. The new wave of terrorism against Jewish civilians will set back the Palestinian cause but advance Iran's. Perhaps most disappointing has been the failure to extend the Trump-brokered Abraham Accords. The Saudis are the prize, but Mr. Biden's open hostility drove them to hedge their bets by signing a Chinese-brokered deal with Iran instead. Normalization with Israel may have to wait for a U.S. president interested in rallying a coalition to contain Tehran. As usual in the region, Iran is the story behind the story. The longer and stronger nuclear deal the president promised is long gone. His administration has been reduced to floating an unwritten stopgap agreement that would give Tehran tens of billions of dollars to sit on the precipice of nuclear breakout. Call it Hezbollah's and Islamic Jihad's lucky day. This is a startling retreat, even from Barack Obama's position, but with the same ends in mind staying Israel's hand and reshaping the region with Iran on board. Alas, for the U.S., the enemy gets a say. 
While Tehran escalates its proxy wars and whittles down U.S. nuclear demands, Mr. Biden carries out diplomatic offensive against Saudi Arabia and Israel. In an interview this past weekend with CNN's Farid Zakaria, President Joe Biden painted a dismal picture of one of our closest allies. Following up on previous statements damning Israeli's leaders, Biden claimed that the Jewish state was being run by one of the most extreme governments he's ever seen. He went on to characterize the goings-on in Israel that's struggling to maintain control by moving towards moderation. The answer was a response to a question about why Biden hadn't invited Netanyahu to Washington, though ironically, China, America's chief geostrategic enemy, has asked him visit Beijing. Biden answered by simply saying that Israeli President Isaac Herzog will soon be coming to Washington. That's all well and good, but Herzog, despite his periodic attempts to intervene in politics, has a purely symbolic role in the country's governance. The question of denying Netanyahu the courtesy of a visit is mere optics. What matters is that Biden has spent 2023 doing everything in his power to undermine the prime minister and aid those seeking to topple his government. A major feature of that effort is the administration's open opposition to the government's legislation that seeks to reform Israel's out-of-control Supreme Court and judicial system. The backing for the anti-Bibi resistance that has spent the last six months trying to overrun the results of Israel's November 2022 election is highly ironic given the Democratic Party's attitude to supporters of former President Donald Trump, who regard Biden as an illegitimate president. The Israeli effort has been influenced by the success of the anti-Trump resistance that has spent his four years in office seeking to delegitimize his victory in 2016 while promoting conspiracy theories about the Russian collusion hoax. Clearly, Biden is hoping that Netanyahu's opponents succeed, though the chances of that happening are receding with each passing month. And they are fading precisely because Biden's evaluation of that government— coupled with the implication that Netanyahu's not in control and at the mercy of its most right-wing elements is completely false. It's true that this current coalition, unlike Netanyahu's previous governments, lacks any left-wing or supposedly centrist parties. Still, the notion that the prime minister is a hostage to the so-called extremists in the cabinet, like Minister of National Security Itamar Ben-Gvir, is simply untrue. It is Netanyahu who is very much calling the shots in Jerusalem. Given Biden's own clear problems in asserting control over his own administration and his daily problems in expressing himself in a way that doesn't call attention to his age, can he say the same? The very same day that Biden's interview was airing on CNN, Netanyahu gave a clear demonstration that he, and not Ben Gavir, Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, or the Haradi parties are in charge. Faced with a tottering Palestinian authority on the verge of collapse due to its corruption, incompetence, and refusal to accept responsibility to prevent terrorism, mainly to fight efforts by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad to turn Judea and Samaria into another Gaza, Israel's security cabinet acted. It voted eight to one to take emergency measures to help save it. The one no vote was Ben Gavir. The argument about what Israel should do about the PA is complicated. 
Mahmoud Abbas, its 87-year-old leader, is a big part of the problem. And the same is true for the rest of the Fatah party kleptocracy that he leads. The PA works against peace in international forums. It foments violence and hatred of Israel and Jews and its official media and in schools. It subsidizes terror in the form of a pay-for-slay program that rewards those who injure and murder Israelis and Jews. And its sheer ineffectiveness has turned the areas under its control into a worse mess than it would otherwise be. But the alternative to its continued existence is for Israel to reassert direct control of all of Judea and Samaria. In essence, it would mean resuming an actual occupation of all of the West Bank that ended decades ago after the Oslo Accords, although the international community and Israel's critics and enemies like to pretend that never happened. Yet Netanyahu is prepared to offer its financial assistance to keep Abbas's corrupt regime afloat. Palestinian leadership will quietly take that help it publicly refused. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.